Good morning, gentlemen. I hate to interrupt your breakfast conversations. It's it's wonderful to see every table mostly full. We're going to add some tables for next month. Next month will be a, a GIC-themed month, um, and we'll have one or two missionaries here telling about their journey, and it probably will involve more than one time zone. And so um, look forward to that next month. I am Eric Stevens. For those of you who have not met me or gotten an email from me or a text message from me, um, if you're new today, if this is your first time here, including our speakers, raise your hand. Excellent. So if you're standing, sitting next to someone who just raised their hand, make certain that they put their email address and their name on the sign-in sheet, and uh, we will encourage them to be back here again in a month. Um, I do have speakers lined up for the next several months. Let me tell you who they are. So in one month, we're going to have uh, one or two missionaries from the GIC weekend, and there's a service opportunity that's going to come out of that, and I'll tell you about that in just a minute. Um, the next month in April, that will be the Thursday after Easter, for those of you who need to remember when things are, will be Jason Scott, and uh, we'll get to hear a lot about that. The other service opportunity is All to Your Life. All to Your Life is this weekend. I know many of us think of this as the Super Bowl weekend, but it's really All to Your Life. Trust me, my daughter is an intern right now in the Dodd, and this is All to Your Life weekend, and then there's a Super Bowl. Um, there is a prayer sheet for volunteering to have someone constantly in prayer for Alter Your Life. Has anybody here had a child or a grandchild go through Alter Your Life weekend? All right. Ask that person what Alter Your Life meant to that kid and how important it was that adults be participating in that. There are going to be services Friday night and Sunday, Saturday night for the kids. But they're going to be surrounded by prayer all weekend long. I'm going to put this sign-up sheet over where you signed signed in. There's two locations that you can pray. One at home, and there's night slots where you know you can pray from wherever you happen to be. And during the daytime hours, there is actually a prayer room set aside in the A building. If you go to the Sunday school class closest to the elevator, that's going to be the prayer room. And there's slots two or three sat Friday night several Saturday afternoon, and if you would be willing to sign up for one of those slots, be in the prayer room or pray from wherever you happen to be, uh, it'll make all the difference in the world in your journey and in their journey. Ask someone who raised their hand about what Alter Your Life did to those kids. It's a, it's a phenomenal it's a phenomenal weekend. Um, other announcements. Oh, and then after Jason is with, with us on uh, the, the Thursday after Easter, we're going to have Tom Alderman. Tom Alderman is our, our organist. And I'm sure many of you have heard or seen Tom and wondered, how can this person possibly press all these things at the same time? And he has, a, he has an amazing story. And so I look forward to hearing from him in May. And then Paul Sil, Silgar, who um, was featured in this last week's service, um, will be uh, speaking to us in June. And so... Several speakers all lined up. This morning, um, Lee Jenkins is going to be with us, and uh, Jay Litton is going to introduce him. So I'll sit down and be quiet and look forward to people signing up for the prayer sheets afterwards. Jay. Good morning. I need to ask this question before we get started. How many people did not vote for Lee Jenkins this past fall? I need a show of hands. And if you're in Cobb County, keep the hands raised. My name's Jay Litton, and uh, just excited today to have somebody the caliber of Lee Jenkins here. I first met Lee last summer, and uh, I actually met him through uh, a former member of Third Day, Ty Anderson, who happens to live here in Roswell, and the conversation turned to, should Lee consider running for mayor? And I would just say, after my one-hour breakfast with him, I thought, oh my goodness, if we could have somebody rise above the political scene that we had here in Roswell and be a leader's leader and be the face of Roswell in the way that he's able to demonstrate, that would just be real exciting. So I signed up to be his campaign chairman 
And of course we lost, but, <laughs> and that is why he lost. But um, most importantly, what you need to know about Lee is, uh, I don't know if you've ever been to his website, LeeJenkins.com, that we had stood up during the campaign, but he's got one of the most beautiful uh, photos of his family. So he's been married for 29 years. Actually, well, be 30 in about two so I was right. Yeah, you were right? right. Okay, I like being right. So he's going to be almost 30. Um, his wife, Martika, is, I, I guess, I'm trying to remember where you met. Uh, we met in Los Angeles. Los Angeles, okay, but he did go to UT, and that's where we have something in common. I went to college in Tennessee. Not at UT, I went to Austin P. But, you know, I didn't play football, he did play football. He got drafted into the NFL. Got injured, so that kind of hurts your playing time. But he was with the Giants for about a year. And then uh, moved into financial services with Morgan Stanley and Raymond James for a 25-year career. And then, I don't know about you, but because I'm you know, part of the job networking ministry, I kind of gravitate towards people who have like life-changing career decisions. And he did that by leaving the financial services industry and starting up a church with 17 people here in Roswell called Eagle's Nest. And today, after five years, five and a half, almost six years, the church has over a thousand folks. And if you ever can uh, skip Chapel Roswell, oh, Eric's here. Never mind. Um, actually, you can do his services allow you to go to both services. So they have an early service at eight thirty, I think, and at ten thirty. I highly recommend you, you will get a great experience when you do that. Probably the interesting thing about Lee is, despite the fact that we haven't known each other too long. We got a crash course in getting to know each other really well. And I've seen Lee in some really great situations. And I've seen Lee when there were some really tough things that we had to deal with. And his character stayed constant throughout that entire journey. And I am proud to call Lee Jenkins my friend. And I hope you will be able to do that this morning as well. Lee. Can everyone hear me? Good. Okay, good. It's good to see everybody this morning. And thank you, Jay, for that incredible uh, introduction. Uh, Jay is an incredible friend of mine, and it is so good to get to know people. I mean, it seems like I've been knowing him my entire life. And if you know Jay, he kind of grows on you, doesn't he? And uh, Jay asked me, he said, Lee, do you believe in free speech? I said, yes, I do. He said, good, because you're doing one this morning. <laughs> so whatever Jay tells me to do, that's what I do. I'm always uh, humbled when I hear people talk about some of the things that God has allowed me to do. And, uh, and we can keep that up for right now. And um, So I'm going to talk a little bit about my life, and then we're going to kind of jump into a little, little presentation, kind of what I have on my heart. Um, one day I was uh, introduced, like Jay did me, at a, at a very big function, and, and they read my entire bio, and they talked about how, uh, you know, I was drafted in the NFL, and how I, I spent 25 years in the investment business, and then how i uh, written a couple of books, and, and I started a church, and then how I ran for mayor of Roswell. I mean, so while the person was reading my bio, I must admit, I was starting to feel pretty good about myself. <laughs> so a little old lady came up to me. It was a predominantly black church, and this little old lady came up to me, and she said, Baby, she said, is it true that you really played pro football? I said, well, ma'am, I didn't play a lot. I got hurt, but I was with the Giants for, for a year. She said, and baby, she said, um, you were... Uh, an investment advisor trained on Wall Street for, and uh, spent 25 years in the investment business? I said, yes, yes, ma'am, I did. And she said, and babe, on top of that, you've written a couple of books on finances? I said, yes, ma'am. And then she said, and babe, you have started a church, you planted a church, and y'all are a thousand members? I said, yes, ma'am. And I'm feeling pretty good about myself. I mean, really good. My chest is sticking out. She said, baby, can I tell you one more thing? I said, bring it on. I want to hear it. She said, it sounds like you need to get a steady job to me. <laughs> so I've done a lot, but I've just been a little unstable. Can't figure out what I want to do. So today I want to share uh, two primary things with you. I want to share uh, about my life and about the uh, transformation that Jesus Christ did in my life. So I'm going to talk a little bit about my history and 
and about how I grew up and some of the things that were important to me. And then I kind of want to dovetail into a very important issue that a lot of people don't talk about, but it, it's been an issue that I've always been comfortable with, and, and I've seen God use me in, in a tremendous way. So um, let's just kind of start off me telling you my story and how Jesus Christ changed my life. Uh, I grew up in Atlanta, Georgia, in the inner city of Atlanta, in fact. Uh, we were about a mile, the first 12 years of my life, we lived in an apartment that was about a mile from the old Turner Field, the old Atlanta Stadium. So when I say inner city, I really mean the inner city. And um, my mother was a school teacher. My mom and my dad were from South Georgia. My mom was a school teacher. My dad was a blue-collar worker. He was an alcoholic. And so our finances went up and went down because it just depends on how much he drank that week and, and whether he was able to keep his job. So we struggled uh, profusely from a financial standpoint. Church was always a part of our life. Uh, I mean, there are a few things that were very important to us. I mean, of course, education, um, sports, uh, and church. Uh, so I grew up in, in, a, in a Baptist church, in a traditionally black Baptist church. So if we got out of service early, that meant it was about three hours, okay? So, you know, you know, I remember the first time, and I'll skip a little bit, that I went to a church, and when I went to the University of Tennessee, and I went to a, a all-white church, and I came home, and I told my mom, I said, Mom, you're not going to believe this. She said, I said, they got out in an hour. I said, I, I didn't know you could do church in an hour. But I went to a, a predominantly black Baptist church, learned about Jesus, but really didn't learn about Jesus. I didn't know that you could have a personal relationship. Uh, Christianity was a part of the culture that I grew up in. Grew up in a very proud black environment that was very civil rights focused. Uh, they pounded in us that we should get our education, that we could do anything that we wanted to do, anything that we set our mind to do, that we could be victorious, that just because of the color of our skin, we were not victims. And that was pounded into me, that I could succeed at anything I set my mind to do. And that people were good, regardless of some of the things that were going on. Most people were good. And that's what my parents taught me. And that's how I've always seen people. I've never seen people by how much money they made or the color of their skin. I've always been able to peer into a person's heart and to find the good. So I grew up wanting to be like my dad. With the exception of his alcoholism, he was a great guy. He played college football at Fort Valley State College, which is a small black college in Fort Valley. He was one of the top high school football players coming out. At that particular time, if you were black, you couldn't go to the University of Georgia or Tennessee or Florida. Um, so he would have had to go to the West Coast or up north to play for one of the big schools, but he wanted to stay in the south. So he narrowed his choices down between Florida A&M and Fort Valley State, which was right up the street from where he uh uh, grew up, so we chose Fort Valley State, met my mom there, and they uh, they had me. So growing up in the inner city was interesting. Uh, we didn't have a lot of money, but life was good. Uh, it was good because all of us were kind of on the same plane. I mean, everybody struggled. Uh, I didn't really know that we were poor until I would watch this show called The Brady Bunch on Friday evenings. And I was like, man, now that's a good life right there. So my goal was to be like my dad, to play sports, to be a superstar, to play professional football. Uh, there was only one problem. I had absolutely no talent. Um, every week, the neighborhood bully would beat me up and take my lunch. And her name was, uh, <laughs> was Michelle. <laughs> it, was a, it was a girl. <laughs> so I, I was one of these kids was the most unlikely to succeed. When my parents finally let me play football at the age of 11 or 12 years old, people said, what position did you play? I said, I was a tailback. Because every time I ran on the field, a coach said, Jenkins, get your tail back over here on this bench and sit down. But an amazing thing happened around the seventh grade. 
and it was a thing that a lot of young people don't like. I loved it. It was called puberty. Now, the reason I loved it is because all of a sudden my voice started to change, and it got really deep, and and I started to grow. And I noticed that I could jump higher than most kids. We were I remember we were trying to touch the bottom of the nets in one of our PE classes when I was, I think, 7th or 8th grade, and all the kids were trying to see who could touch the bottom of the nets. And I remember walking up and just looking up and jumping up and just, hanging on the rim, and everybody said, oh, well, how did you do that, and and by the time I was in the ninth grade, I was dunking a basketball, and and so when all the other kids were, you know, had their pimples and going through the things that they were going through, I had all that too, but it was like, wow, I grew, I got good in sports, and by the time I was a 10th grader, I was a star at my high school, and within a year after that, by the time I was 11th grade, I had about 30, if not 40 schools trying to recruit me to play football. I was a quarterback, option quarterback. Most schools recruited me as an athlete. Uh, Vince Dooley was at University of Georgia, was at just about all of my games. Um, Georgia Tech recruited me, Tennessee, Florida, Florida State, Ohio State, Michigan, Arizona, Arizona State. I mean, they were coming out of the woodwork. So this guy who used to get beat up by a girl every week, who used to get his lunch taken, who was ignored on the playgrounds, who was the most unlikely to succeed, was now a star at 17 years old. Had the big-time coaches and programs coming at me, offering me scholarships. You would think at 17 years old that I would have been the happiest person in the world. But that was the first time that I started to notice a void in my life. The more I achieved... In this world, the more success I attain, the bigger that void got. So I just figured, well, I just need to run some more touchdowns and win some more 100-meter and 200-meter dashes and track and go out with more girls and, and just get more famous, and maybe that void would, would, would shrink. By the time I was a senior in high school, I had all of these schools to choose from. And for some reason, I wanted to get out of Georgia, but not too far. And so I chose the University of Tennessee. A guy named Johnny Majors recruited me. He had just won the national championship at Pittsburgh um, a few years before he recruited me. He had a running back called Tony Dorsett who took him to the national championship. So I decided I wanted to be a Tennessee Vol. And so it was interesting because here I'm coming from this all-black area. I mean, everybody was black. If we saw a white guy in our neighborhood... Something was wrong. You know, that meant somebody was in trouble. That's what that meant. They were coming to get you, okay? So now I'm coming from Atlanta, the inner city, to Knoxville, Tennessee. And all white, uh, I guess you could label it conservative, Christian, republic, Bible belt area. Which was literally... The opposite, I mean, the Christian part was what I grew up in, but everything else was the opposite. And boy, was it a cultural shock. But it was the best thing that ever happened in my life. So two things happened my freshman year. Number one is unlike a lot of the black guys on the team, we would go into our cafeteria, and it was amazing. As much as we played football together, as much as we struggled together on the football field, when we went in that lunchroom, you would see the black guys break off on one side of the room, and you would see the white guys go to the other side of the room. And, and I found out that's how it had been for years at the University of Tennessee. It was just an unwritten code. You, you hang with people who look like you, who vote like you, who grew up like you, and the only time you really come together is when you have to. Nobody socialized with each other. Nobody went to parties with each other. But when we were on that field, we were brothers. But outside of the football field, it was like we didn't even know each other. So two things the Lord allowed me to do my freshman year in college that really changed my life. Number one is when I was in that line, I was talking to a guy, I'll never forget, his name was Steve Paul. He was a white guy from Kingsport, Tennessee. And we were having a conversation and we had both gotten our food, and it was time for me to break off to go sit with the black guys and time for him to go break off to go sit with the white guys. 
but I wanted to continue our conversation. So I hung a left instead of hanging a right, and I walked with Steve Poe, and I sat down at the table in the white section. And boy, everybody was looking, what is Lee doing? I mean, and this was fall of 1979. So you would think that wouldn't have been a big deal, but it was. It was a big deal to the black guys because they they were like, what is Lee doing? Or is he selling out? What What is he doing? He's not supposed to be doing that. They have a word that they call black guys like that. They call him an Uncle Tom, okay? I don't, I don't know what that means, but it's just, it's not a compliment, okay? But then the white guys were looking at me like, well, what is, what is he doing? But I was resolute. So I'm going to stay right here. I'm going to finish my conversation. And I'm going to get to know my friend, Steve Poe. And Steve Poe actually became my one of my best friends. I was the best man at his wedding a few years later. And just from that one act of boldness, I noticed a few weeks later, some of the white guys started coming over to the black side. And some of the black guys started coming over to the white side. And all it took was one person to be bold and to not... <coughs> Uh, succumb to the status quo. So the second thing that happened to me is I was invited to a meeting called the Fellowship of Christian Athletes, FCA. We didn't have FCA in the inner city, so I didn't know what FCA stood for. Somebody said, well, we have a mandatory FCA meeting. I thought it meant future convicts of America or something like that, because we had some rough guys on our team. I mean, it was not good. So we're going to this place. And they had a speaker, his name was John Bramlett. John Bramlett in 1965 got second to Joe Namath in Rookie of the Year honors. He was a linebacker for the New England Patriots. And he was rough and he was mean. They used to call him Bull Bramlett. He was so rough and mean that he literally, after the defense would come off the field, he would get on the bench and, and, and light up a cigar on the sidelines, in the middle of a football game. I mean, I have pictures of him with a cigar, and the coaches, nobody would mess with him because that's Bull Bramlett. He's mean. Well, Bull Bramlett had a conversion in his life. God got a hold of him, and his life changed. And after his football career was over, he committed it to evangelizing, going around talking to young men about what it means to serve and to live for Jesus Christ. So he talked to our football team that night, and I'll never forget it. He talked about how success, how sports achievement, how popularity, how all of these outward things was his God. And then he said that no matter how much you achieve, no matter how much money you make, no matter how many women you sleep with, no matter how big your business grows, that it will never make you happy on the inside. And he said, some of you guys out there, you're chasing success. And your God is football. Your God is fame. Your God is fortune. And that's why you're not happy. And as he was talking, I felt like he was talking directly to me. Because although I had grown up in the church, my God really was not Jesus Christ. My God was me. My God was what I wanted to achieve in life. My God was getting out of the the inner city so I could have me a big house in the suburbs and make a lot of money and pray pro football and be popular. Because that's all I thought about. That's what I was consumed with. And even even though I was a good student, but the, the real reason I was a good student is because I wanted to be a success. Not necessarily because I enjoyed the academic part. So I was so driven, and I realized that the reason I was empty is because the Bible says, what shall it profit a man to gain the whole world and lose his soul? And I realized at that moment, that void was because I didn't have a relationship with Jesus Christ. So he gave an invitation. It was the first time I remember in my entire life somebody challenging me or a group of people to accept Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior and to do it boldly. And there I was with a 100 guys on my football team, all of us listening to this guy. And this guy said, if you're really serious, you'll come down here right now in front of your teammates and you'll give your heart to Jesus. That's if you were really serious about serving him. And I remembered standing up 
almost as if I wasn't in control of my own body and walking down. And a funny thing happened. By the time I got to John Bramlett, I was crying, tears rolling down my eyes. And and I don't remember crying. I mean, maybe since I was five years old, because you just didn't cry in the neighborhood I grew up in. But I was crying. I was broken. And that night, I gave my heart to Jesus Christ. And my life has not been the same since. I was the president of Fellowship of Christian Athletes. And that little campus ministry of 12 people grew to about 80 people meeting every Tuesday night. And it was the first time in my life where I saw God just do something incredible with me from a leadership standpoint and from a cross-racial standpoint. We had black people, we had white people, we had athletes, we had non-athletes. So I knew God had his hand on me to do something special, particularly as it relates to racial healing and racial unity. So after that, I, uh, my, my boyhood dream did come true. I was drafted by the New York Giants. Uh, my senior year didn't go as well as I wanted to. I was hurt most of my senior year at Tennessee, even though I played just about every game, but I was limping around pretty bad. And um, But I was still ranked as one of the top defensive backs uh, in, in the country, but, but the doctors weren't sure if I was going to be able to have a, a pro career. But the New York Giants took a chance on me. I remember getting the call uh, one night, and I figured, because before you get drafted by the pros, they do a lot of homework. I mean, it is a business, gentlemen. Don't don't get it wrong. I mean, I know you all, you know, you look at it on TV, but it is a business. And it, and it dawned on me how much of a business it was. It was because about two months before the draft, they had these things called combine camps. I'd never heard of a combine camp. I just got this letter saying that I was supposed to show up in Indianapolis, Indiana, and they showed us the schedule for three days, all the stuff we were supposed to do. So we went there, and it was about... 250 of the top college players in the nation. And, man, all the teams were there. And we had to meet with just about every team representative. And we had to take physicals. Every team doctor was there. And they were pulling on us, and they were jerking on our legs. And they were, I mean, and then we would stand up, and there was a little stage, and we had to strip down to our underwear. And we had to go and just stand up, and they were taking pictures of us, and then we turned sideways, and then we, t- I mean, it was like, what in the world? Am I getting ready to get sold here? You know? And the answer was, yes, I'm getting ready to get sold, getting ready to get bought. So some of the teams that were interested in me, I remember the Kansas City Chiefs took a special interest in me. I remember the Miami Dolphins told me that they would probably draft me, and then I remember uh, the Dallas Cowboys saying, man, we really like the kind of athlete you are. So I figured, you know, it's probably one of those teams. But that night I got a call from the New York Giants. And the New York Giants, I don't even think they'd ever sent me a letter. And so most of the head coaches of all the NFL team, I either knew or saw them on TV. But this particular coach, I'd never heard of him when he called me because he had just gotten hired as a first-year head coach. And to be honest with you, I was excited that I got drafted, but I wanted to play for somebody who I've been watching on TV. And here this coach called me and said they just drafted me and I needed to report to New York the next day. And that guy's name was Bill Parcells. And, of course, the rest is history. I get to New York and all the rookies had to meet with the offensive rookies, had to meet with the offensive coordinator. Defensive rookies had to meet with the defensive coordinator. And so I walk in the room with the defensive players, and there's a 31-year-old defensive coordinator who I'd never heard of. It was his first year as a defensive coordinator. He looked so young, like he was a little bit older than us. Didn't look like he knew football at all. Had the most boring voice that you could ever hear. And his name was Bill Belichick. (laughs) So for my first year with the Giants, I got a chance every day, hours on hours, to be around Bill Parcells and Bill Belichick. So I'll tell you what I did, and then we're going to jump into kind of the scripture. I called my buddies halfway, maybe three-quarters through the season. I was on injured reserve. I didn't get a chance to play. Uh, I had to have surgery, and they were hoping that the next year I would come back and be able to make the active roster, which didn't happen because I never got well. But nonetheless, I was with the team that fall. I remember calling my buddies, and I said, guys, I guarantee you 
if I can hang in here two more years, that I will have a Super Bowl ring. And my buddies laughed at me because they said, Lee, you all are one of the worst teams. And we were in the NFL. We were 3-13. and 13. We lost 13 games. But I know a great leader when I'm around a great leader. And sure enough, two years later, unfortunately I wasn't there, but two years later the Giants won the Super Bowl. And it was because of leadership. So uh, after my football career was over, I got into the investment business, and again, I was thrust into an environment for a, a young black guy going into an environment that people said I could never succeed in. I mean, I literally had people said that the reason you won't make it as an investment advisor is because they said, first of all, there are not, there's not enough black wealth to support your practice, which was not the truth, especially in Atlanta. There were many, many wealthy people who were black. And then the second thing they told me is they said white people won't do business with you because you're black. And I found that not to be true. Uh, about 60-something percent of my clients over a 25-year period were white. And some of the names were big names, like the Kathy family of Chick-fil-A were clients of mine. So God gave me tremendous success. And um, But the thing that happened in my life in 2010 I started to feel, actually 2008, I started to feel this void again. Now, it's interesting because by this time I'm married, I have a family, and I'm like, why? I remember this void from years earlier. But now I know Jesus. Now I know my priorities are in order. Why am I feeling like I am empty? I was living at that time in a 9,000-square-foot house in Roswell. Kids were doing great. Business was rocking and rolling, but for some reason, I couldn't get rid of this void. And it was almost as if this void was telling me there's more to your life than what you're doing right now. I just kind of wrote it off as I was going through a midlife crisis, because all of a sudden, me making money and doing some of the things I was doing was not quite as important to me. It just didn't bring me that thrill anymore. And so usually what I do is I double up. I mean, it's like, you know, when the goings get tough, double up. And then that 2008 financial crisis hit. And by this time, not only did I have most of my personal assets in the stock market, I began to dabble in some real estate. And boy, I got crushed. So I literally sense the Lord telling me, is this what you want to invest the rest of your life in? something that you can't control, something that could go away, and what are you going to be left with? So from 2008 to 2010, I wrestled with God. I wrestled with how did I want to spend the rest of my my life. I was knocking on 50 years old at the time. It was in my late 40s. And I was like, certainly, Lord, you're not going to ask me to do something different. I mean, look how comfortable my life is. I mean, even though I've been hit financially, I could, I could still, I can still make it. And I began to wrestle with God. And anytime you wrestle with God, you know who's going to win. He's going to win. So to make a long story short, I stepped away from the business, from the big house, from the money, from the prestige, from the success that I'd had for 25 years in 2010. So from 2010 to 2012, I divested myself and got out of the investment business. And um, since that, the Lord wanted me to be in full-time ministry. Now, many of my friends thought I was crazy. I got a lot of support. My wife was on board 100%. But a lot of people says Lee Jenkins has lost his mind. But I knew I hadn't lost my mind because I wanted to invest in people more than things. I wanted to develop people more than investment portfolios. And nothing is wrong with invest, uh, developing investment portfolios, but I just felt like God had something more for me. So we started Eagles Nest Church. I started Eagles Nest Church with about 15 to 17 people. And it was the scariest thing I've ever done in my life because it was on faith. It would be different if I'd had millions of dollars saved and it would be different if we had had this incredible stock market and I was just loaded and, and then I tell the business goodbye because I know that I have that security blanket there. But it was the opposite. It was probably the worst 
my finances had ever looked in 10 or 12 years. And here I am, downsizing, selling the house, and not knowing how the future was going to look, except knowing that I wanted to obey God. And so we started Eagle's Nest Church, and the rest is history. We've grown from 15 people to well over a 1,000 people. Uh, God has used me tremendously in the Roswell community, and I've just been doing what I do, building relationships, pouring into people's lives, and doing some unconventional things here in Roswell, like running for mayor, things that people told me that uh, that would never work. Um, but when I ran for mayor, what was amazing is some of the comment, the negative comments I heard were the same comments I heard when I went to sit with Steve Paul in that cafeteria. It's like, what are you doing? Uh, it was the same comments I heard when I went into the investment business. Well, they say white people won't do business with you. It wasn't the truth. If I had listened to all the things people told me that I couldn't do because I was black or that would not happen because other people were white, then I wouldn't have gotten anywhere in life. And so that's what I kind of want to talk to you about today as I kind of close out my talk is how important it is to be different, how important it is for us as men of God to be bold and to make a difference in this world. Because if we do what everybody else does, then we are a part of the problem, not a part of the solution. And we live in an interesting world right now. Uh, growing up, again, in the inner city of Atlanta, having parents who were raised in the deep south, I saw a lot. And all of it wasn't good. And if I wanted to, I could have had some bitterness. I could have allowed fear to take over my life. Or I could have bought into the status quo, like a lot of people who I grew up with, and just decided they were going to stay in their comfort zone and not really reach across the aisle to people who didn't look like them. But I decided that I was going to do that, and I was going to take some risks. And so me running for mayor was really something that wasn't surprising to people who knew me because I was always breaking the status quo. So one of the things that, that I am concerned about that I want to kind of talk to you about, and I just want to look at some lessons that Jesus gave us, and that's... Uh, I've entitled this presentation, just for the next 10 minutes, Conversations, if we could do that, in black and white. Uh, July 23rd, 2017, last year, the Atlanta Journal-Constitution did the largest article that they have ever done in the history of the newspaper on race. And it featured a movement that I started called Conversations. When all of these things were happening in our country, from shootings of police officers to shootings of uh, unarmed uh, black men to people being arrested to all of the criticisms, all of the misunderstandings, all of the polarizations, I just reached my, my boiling point. I said, if we don't start talking to each other, if we don't start loving each other, if we don't start doing what Jesus did, then we are going to implode as a country. So I began to reach out to some of my white Christian pastor friends to say, hey, guys, let's get together and let's pray and let's talk and let's let's model what racial unity is supposed to look like. Let's model it to our families, to our congregations, and to our communities. And so from this nine months of me meeting with these gentlemen, um, I came up with the idea that other people needed to experience what we experienced. So I started a, a movement called Conversations. is where predominantly black churches, predominantly white churches come together in small groups, groups of about ten people. And you get together and you meet once a month for four months. And you, we have a series of questions, and boy, they were some tough questions. And we delve into this issue. And I tell you, people's lives were changed. And it was all because 
we got an opportunity to talk to one another, to listen to one another, to better understand one another, but to love one another. So let me just go through this. This is just something I want to show you as I come to a close. Conversations in black and white. It's um, it's what did Jesus do to promote racial healing and unity? Well, the first thing, Jesus was intentional. In John chapter 4, there's a story about Jesus and the woman at the well. And it says in verse 3 and 4, it says, So he left Judea, returned to Galilee, and he had to go through Samaria on the way. The Samaritan woman, his encounter with the Samaritan woman. The Bible says he had to go through Samaria. He left Judea, returned to Galilee, but he went through Samaria. Samaria was located right in between Judea and Galilee. So, but most Orthodox Jews would not go through Samaria. They would go all the way around 285 to get to Galilee. They would not go straight up 400. Well, why would they not want to go through Samaria? Because Samarians were despised. Samarians were considered half-breeds. They were uh, Assyrian, and they were Jewish, and they were mixed-race people. And Jews wanted nothing to do with them. And so here Jesus said, I'm going to go through Samaria. I'm not going to go around 285. I'm not going to, I'm not going to curve off into the line and just sit with the black guys or the white guys. I'm not going to do what culture says do. I'm going to do what God says I should do. So the first thing, guys, I want to challenge you on is be intentional about your relationships. And I'm going to say especially cross-racially, because it doesn't just happen. One of the reasons we see so much division in this country is we're not intentional enough. Jesus was intentional. Second thing, this is a statement, racial unity doesn't just happen. It is hard, tedious, and uncomfortable. So when these people came together and the conversations movement, Oh, we talked about everything, from politics to Trump to Hillary to uh, eat poor to rich. I mean, woo, man, it was tough, and people wanted to bail out. But a part of going through these four months was you had to hang in there, and you had to listen, and it changed people's lives. Second thing. How did Jesus promote racial and healing and unity? Jesus found common ground. One of the reasons that this conversation movement worked, you all, is because we didn't start with our differences. We started with what we had in common. And do you know that 90-something percent of people in America, if, if well, people in America, we have about 90-something percent of who we are we have in common, if not almost 100 there are only a few things that really divide folks. The problem is we let those few things really divide us. So we found out that all of us wanted to love our families and wanted to be solid economically and wanted to love God. And there was so much we had in common. So why do we say this as it relates to Jesus? I won't read this whole thing, but in John chapter 4, verses 5 and 6, it said that eventually he came to the Samaritan village near Sakar near the field that Jacob gave to his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there. He sat wearily beside the well. And then he jumps down to verse 12. Uh, he talks about this ancestor Jacob. He kept referring to Jacob and this well. Why? Because the Samaritans loved Jacob and the Jews loved Jacob. He was still, he was considered their spiritual father. So what am I saying? Jesus found what they had in common. So if you want to make a difference relationally with people, always look at what you have in common. And there's more that you have in common with people that you have that's different. Here's a statement. Build a bridge of communication by, started with, by starting with what you can agree on. So here's what we did. We focused on what we agree on, agreed on, not what we had, uh, not the differences that we had. Thirdly, 
How did Jesus promote racial and healing and unity? Jesus engaged in an intimate act of fellowship. Now, this is where it got hard in the conversation movement, because one of the things we did, we said, okay, the first meeting we had, we had it in our church. We had round tables, just like you all. People got to know their groups. Black people sat with white people, and we went through a series of questions. But then the second meeting, you had to meet over a black person's house. And then the third meeting, you had to meet over a white person's house. And then the fourth meeting, we came back together in a large group like this. And that was all on purpose because what we wanted to do is we wanted them to fellowship with each other in an intimate way. Let me tell you why that's important. It says, soon the Samaritan woman came to draw water and Jesus said to her, please give me a drink. He was alone at the time because his disciples had gone into the village to buy some food. But look at what the woman did. She said, the woman was surprised for Jews refused to have anything to do with Samaritans. She says to Jesus, you are a Jew and I am a Samaritan. It's almost like somebody saying, you're black and I'm white. Why are you sitting over here on this side of the cafeteria and not sitting with your people? That's basically what she's saying. You're a Jew and I'm a Samaritan woman. Why are you asking me for a drink? Here's my point. Jesus was willing to put his Jewish lips on this lady's Samaritan cup. He, he was willing to break out of his comfort zone and engage in an intimate act of fellowship. So what am I saying? One of the greatest hindrances to racial unity is our unwillingness to engage each other socially. So guys, when was the last time you had a person who didn't look like you, who didn't vote like you, who didn't grow up like you, at your house, at your dinner table, uh, going on vacation with them, out to lunch. So I want to encourage you that, that if we're not engaging with people, then we might be contributing to the problem instead of being the solution. Lastly, Jesus refused to allow culture to override truth. In other words, the truth of God was more important than his culture. And sometimes people put their culture first. They put their blackness before they put their Christianity. They put their whiteness before they put their Christianity. They put their Hispanicness, if that's a word, before they put their Christianity. But no, first and foremost, we are men and women of God. And so Jesus refused to allow culture to override truth. I won't go through all of these, but basically he starts telling the woman, uh, some things, and he basically says that, hey, hey, you're wrong. He, she says, uh, he says, you, you Jews insist that Jerusalem is the only place of worship, while we Samaritans claim that that is here at Mount uh, Gerizim. So, in other words, they got into this this theological battle, and this lady was more concerned about her culture, and Jesus was more concerned about the spiritual part. And I won't go through all of this, but I want to make this statement. There cannot be a stronger commitment to the history of your culture than to the human dignity of your friend. And that was the thing that changed people. So no matter where people stood politically, culturally, once you get to know somebody and that person is your friend, then your culture, your race is secondary to the dignity of that person. And it's really called love. So I want to end just by saying that uh, one of the greatest experiences of my life was meeting Jay Litton when I had this first meeting to consider whether or not I was going to run for mayor. Um, I must admit to you all, I was, I was in a room, it was Jay, it was about 15, 14 other people, and they asked me to consider running for mayor. And it was like, I'm looking and everybody was white. <laughs> and Jay, you remember what I said? I said Have y'all noticed that I'm a black guy? <laughs> you know? <laughs> and, that's, and then it dawned on me that God is doing it again. He's going to use me, whether I win or lose, to try to bring people together and to uh, represent Jesus Christ and to try to get us unified so we can really live out our faith. I just want to end with the word of prayer. And then uh, it'll be time for us to go home. Let's pray. Father, in the name of Jesus, we thank you for this time and for what you're doing in the hearts of these men. 
And Lord, all of us are different ages. We have different experiences. But Lord, I'm praying that you will help us to get out of our comfort zone and to model the love of Jesus to this dying world. Lord, help us to be salt and light to the earth so that what we do can change the flavor politically, economically, socially, in every way. We pray that we will be a part of the solution and not a part of the problem. So we thank you for this time. We thank you for your word. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you, guys. you all are grateful that you were here this morning and you got to be challenged by Pastor Lee. I had not gotten to hear him speak before today and so I am so grateful that everything turned out and that he was able to be here and challenge us. GIC this year is going to be focused on injustice. Um, I think Lee has really started our uh, brains working around the injustices that we see in a day-to-day life and, and around the world. And I am so pleased that you were able to be here this morning and and rev us up and uh, help us uh, start with football. I know it's Super Bowl weekend. This was a great time for you to visit. All to your life prayer sign-up sheets um, are on the, 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 desk that, uh, the table that you signed in on. It would be great if you could sign up for a time slot. I know my daughter would really appreciate it if I came home with some, some signatures on that so you'll, you'll help this dad out. Um, we'll be back together again in, in four weeks. Um, lots is going to go on in the next four weeks. I would ask that you always be mindful that somebody that you're going to come into contact with has a medical issue that you didn't know anything about, has a job situation going on. Be attuned to the people that you come across. Uh, we all have journeys. And uh, sometimes it's big stuff, sometimes it's little stuff. But we we're... Um, put in that place for a reason. I really believe that. And I believe there was a reason that Lee was here this morning. If you are particularly challenged by what Lee said, if you'd like to participate in a group such as Lee just described, let me know. You all have my email address. Reply to one of the emails you got this week, and uh, we will make that happen. But I'm very excited this morning that we had a full room. We didn't run out of bacon. Um, and uh, next time we'll add another table. So thanks, gentlemen, and have a wonderful week.